My name is Simone, and I grew up listening to my dad tell stories. After living in San Francisco for the past 80 years, he's connected with a lot of creative individuals, from filmmakers to painters, musicians, and historians. Each episode, we'll be talking to a special guest, giving you a glimpse of the stories I've grown up hearing. Please enjoy Stephen Goldstein Knows All. In this episode, we'll be talking to Matthew Kelleher, a longtime friend of my dad's. He's an artist, filmmaker, and philosopher. Please enjoy their fascinating conversations. I know that I first met uh, Matt in the 60s. What year did you start St. Mary's College? Uh, 1965. So I must have met you in 66? Yeah, we met in 66. And did you actually take one of the uh, survey courses in humanities that I was teaching? Uh-huh, yeah, that's how we met. That's how we met. Right. Well, one interesting thing about the meeting, and I have tons and tons of notes about St. Mary's and meeting you, is that this, after uh, an interval of more than 30 years, let's see, 60s or the 70s, 80s, uh, I met you, 90s, I met you at the San Francisco airport where your daughter was returning from a trip to England, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, my daughter, my daughter Chloe, uh, did a stint with the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Mm. Rada. And, and, yeah, with Rada, and, um, she was returning, and I was picking her up, and I saw you there. And one of your daughters was returning from Europe. She was returning from a couple of weeks in France. Oh, right. me? Oh, from uh, French American? French American tour. Oh, yeah, yeah. From yeah. Ecole Bilan, no? Uh, no, uh, Faith. Uh, French, oh, okay. Uh, French American International School. Yeah, but there's two. Yeah, so this was yeah. the less French one. <laughs> and, that, and that's when I met you. For the first oh, time. Oh, okay. Okay. Gosh. Teenage. Teenage. Well, no, I was in fifth grade, I think, only. Oh, my God. Yeah, fifth grade. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So small. <laughs> well, so that was how been... we reconnected, and then you gave me your uh, phone number, and then we uh, started going out to lunch. But that was like almost 20 years later. It was, yeah, it was. In other words, it was somewhere in the uh, mid-teens of this century, and that right. meeting was in 1994, and I felt immediately a warm connection with you, but we didn't activate it until uh, the mid-teens, and the me, I immediately found out that in addition to St. Mary's, which I'll talk about it like in a little while. Uh, we had more friends and institutions in common right. than just about anybody I ever met. Really? Well, I, you're San Francisco and so am I. <clears throat> you know, and uh, the whole imaging connection is something we share. Imaging and uh, the photographer, Imogen Cunningham. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people at the San Francisco Art Institute, 
And uh, I, I didn't really expect for you to end up there. I thought you'd be like a philosophy professor at Cal. But it didn't surprise me that you were there because you had a love of the arts, you know? That's true. And um, it was actually Brother Robert uh, Sixus that encouraged me to take that course. And well, uh, he felt very positive about you. I had first heard of Brother Robert in the 50s because uh, it turns out that he had a student in the 30s by the name of Walter LaRue, who was a timpanist in the San Francisco Orchestra and a teacher of Cal Jader and Lloyd Davis and a number of other jazz musicians. And... Uh, he told me that he'd been to St. Mary's College and that Brother Robert had a big influence on him. Yeah. Well, I was a pre-med major, and um, Brother Matthew Benny was from San Francisco and was a good friend of my family's. And I used to hang with him, you know, at his room with, you know, with uh, John Alioto and Rem Roberti and those guys. And I was a freshman, but I was miserable in pre-med. And I think he told Robert about that, but Robert saw me just walking around once. And he said to me, you know, you're so, why are you so, uh, miserable? And I said, well, I just don't think I'm in the right program. And he encouraged me to, uh, go into the integral program. Mm. And we had several conversations about it. And that's what I did. Now, the integral program was a program which was modeled on the great books courses or actually St. John's College. Right. And uh, I was not, I formally taught some courses, but I was not formally a part of its faculty. Right. And did, did you stay in the integral program? I graduated while? in it. Um, just to be clear, <clears throat> the integral, uh, St. John, Jacob Klein was the big, uh, motivator right. behind the program. And, um, I'll never forget a couple of things. Um, the first, at the first meeting, they gave you a list of every book you'd read for the next four years. And it was a historical approach. And there were no secondary texts allowed. If you wanted to read Plato, about Plato, you read Plato. If you wanted to read about anybody, you read them directly. There were no secondary texts. Um, also, there were there did was you no learn some Greek in that program. Had then? to, yeah, had to. It took three years of Greek. And the other thing is, there weren't professor types at all. There were tutors, and um, the tutors were always out of their game. In other words, if you got your PhD in English. You were teaching math. <laughs> yeah, and their role was to guide the discussion. Well, and Klein, and Klein told us that first day, he said, we're going to teach you two things. We're going to teach you how to read a book and how to ask the right question. And if you learn that, you can learn anything. There you go. <laughs> it, it was in its way a fairly conservative program because when the war was yep. waging in Vietnam, they said their students weren't in a position to make judgments 
about its goodness or badness or the wisdom of it, which struck me as very problematic in a way. Well, we had many discussions in seminar about that, and one of the things that we had back then was the ability to fire a tutor, which the current students don't have. Mm. And we actually uh, fired a tutor over that issue who uh, made several uh, disparaging remarks about us and our involvement in politics. Well, it, it turned out that the St. Mary's faculty generally, and we're talking about a little liberal arts school that's outside of Oakland, California, has faculty signed manifestos against the war Virtually the whole faculty and their names were read in the uh, congressional record by uh, a congressman by the name of Hartke. So even though the pretenses of the uh, that program, you couldn't make a judgment. In fact, the faculty and many students joined them did. Right. The the thing I remember most about um, our involvement with your class and your group was that on several occasions uh, you invited us to your house in Berkeley <laughs> to sit around the fireplace and uh, and talk. <laughs> and uh, you know you would say, "Well, our next meeting is uh, going to be at six o'clock at my house." <laughs> it's like what? <laughs> and it was more kind of, uh, you know, uh, relational than than any class I had taken. Well, that was during the FSM period, and uh, there were a lot of students that were used to meeting in groups off the campus because there was such adversity with the university administration. <laughs> Oh, so they were rebelling and trying to do meetings off campus? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> no, was that true of St. Mary's? Um, yeah, St. Mary's sort of followed what other places did. There were some yeah. great teachers at St. Mary's, like Jim Townsend and Byron Bryan in the English. Oh, area. yeah. Bryan having come out of a Ph.D. from Stanford in the 30s and Jim Townsend from Cal. And they were connected with a lot of important poets in the region, like Robert Duncan and Josephine Miles and... Uh, Brother Antoninus. Right. So... Uh, what I remember about St. Mary's is, first of all, it was all male. Okay. And, and second of all, uh, the quality of the faculty was very high because you had uh, professors from Cal kind of moonlighting and doing two or three classes at St. Mary's. That's really so, true. So you had the advantage of having, you know, the the, the great uh, professors types uh, in a very small setting. I mean, my largest class in the interval was 12 people. That was it. 12 well, people. just in an era, a couple of years uh, before you, Robert Haas, the poet, had gone to yes. uh, St. Mary's. Mary's, and he was beginning to write serious poetry, and he ended up teaching at uh, SUNY Buffalo, 
came back and taught at St. Mary's, became the poet laureate of the United States, and then went to Cal, where he has been ever since that time. Right. But it shows that there was enough stimulus around poetry and poetic thinking that uh, this little regional Catholic college had a wider sort of resonance. True, true. And I uh, I remember our dining hall had these huge William Keith paintings, and some of the classrooms did. Um, but it was very, the setting was very idyllic. Hmm. And uh, you're right. I mean, in order to avoid Vietnam, uh, you had to maintain a C average. And um, Oh, I see. Cause, gotcha. Because you're in school, right? Correct. Okay. And you got what's called a student deferment. Okay. Okay. And uh, that means that you were not eligible to be drafted. Hmm. Okay. And I had a brother in Vietnam who was telling me all the horrors there. Oh. And uh, telling me just... Any way you can, avoid coming here. No kidding. Because it's, it's horrible. So that, you know, that motivated a lot of us, you know, to, to go to college in the first place. Right. Other than wanting to. But, you know, to stay there. Uh, but then, you know, we started discussing the conditions that our different friends and brothers and cousins were in in Vietnam. And it was uh, pretty, uh, pretty horrible. Yeah. And, but, Dad, you were able to avoid it as well, right? Because you weren't – well, you were older, too. Is that it? Well, yeah. there were some older students in Vietnam just ahead of you who became Green Berets, like Brad Kilpatrick, son of a San Francisco fireman. And then he kind of looked upon war as they did in the Bhagavad Gita that you were sort of detached, but you were nonetheless a warrior. And uh, so there was a fair amount of zealots of an unlikely sort going to St. Mary's as well. Right. Well, you know, I mean, even Plato Plato says that, you know, the philosopher kings must serve in the military. Hmm. Right. So, you know, there's that side of it. But how did you get out of being yeah, in the military school? Right, yeah. How did I forget now? Well, uh, I got out by never applying for a deferment, but by having my first child at the age of 22 and a second child at the age of 26. And it turns out you were automatically deferred if you had children. And I had them very young so that I had it. A three years at the point. So it was a de- if you had dependents, you weren't eligible. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I didn't think that you would ever be a military type. Mm-hmm. No. A person. Mm-hmm. Like going back to just my experience, I thought it was extremely enjoyable. You'd be sitting around a fireplace in Berkeley, where I lived, <laughs> um, taking a quote-unquote class, a kind of an open-ended discussion that would, you know, go on to uh, 
hours and hours into the night. <laughs> well, 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 that's a tradition out. you continued at CCA because I would wake up, I would come downstairs in my pajamas not knowing that he was having a class, and here's, you know, 25 students at my breakfast table. Oh, I'm sorry, should I be putting on regular clothes? <laughs> so what was the class? Uh, it was another philosophy class, right, Sam, that you had? Yes, it was. Graduate class? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it turns out, what did you decide to do, Matt, when you graduated St. Mary's? You <laughs> studied everything from Thucydides to Freud. Well, um, as as you progressed into uh, the program at that time, you had more options in terms of electives that you could take. And the electives I took were art, mm. uh, specifically film. And, I, and um, there was just one film teacher there you should explore. An interesting right. teacher, but only that was, one. Uh, yeah, that was Walt McCallum, and I knew Walt very well. And Roy Schmaltz was the head of the uh, the art department. But I, I had been involved in making film prior to coming to St. Mary's because I did film loops for light shows at the Fillmore. Oh, okay. And then when my brother was in Vietnam, he would send me film and ask me to film uh, things happening in the Bay Area, quote-unquote. And then I sent the film undeve <coughs> undeveloped back to him because he had a lab. Oh, my God. In Vietnam. And, you know, my... My various movies became kind of like the local news over there, mm. and the guys would watch it, and that's how I got involved with uh, Canyon Cinema, because I was involved with Canyon Cinema when I was in high school. And Canyon Cinema is where? Well, at that time, it was in Sausalito. Okay. And it was a filmmaker's co-op. Okay. And there was a wonderful man named Emery Menifee. Uh, who put out the uh, like a newsletter every quarter? Mm. He was a writer. Okay. And um, you know there were a lot of quote unquote underground filmmakers uh, that were there, like uh, Bruce Conner and uh, Ben Van Meer, and uh, I'm trying to think of her name. Uh, uh, oh, I forget her name. She made a film called My Name is Una about oh, her daughter. Okay. <laughs> did, it, did it turn out that when you sent these films to Vietnam, that some of the people that watched them were not just horrified, that there was a movement that was very adverse to what they well, were doing? Well, uh, you raise an interesting issue because um, one of the things my brother did was. Um, he was in charge of installing cameras in the, the fighter planes so that the um, the brass could see where the uh, pilots were dumping their bombs. Because in those days, you know, if you had two or three missions left before you got home, they dumped their bombs into the sea. So he actually sent me about a 1,000 feet of various... Uh, uh, you know, pictures from the nose or tail of these aircraft, which I, I then edited into a piece and showed at uh, 
Uh, what's that big hall in Berkeley that we used to have all the meetings Zellerbach. at? Huh? Zellerbach. I was just going to say that. No, it wasn't Zellerbach. Oh, no. Zellerbach was too new. This is an older one right through Taylor Gate. Berkeley. What? Berkeley. Well, it was probably actually uh, in Wheeler Auditorium. Which... It was Wheeler, right, Stephen. And I showed that footage um, at a Vietnam Day meeting, and uh, people were really horrified and upset um, because it made the war too real. You know, I mean, it's fine to have this idea about the well, war. Well, right, but then to, to actually see Yeah, I mean, this on. is, na you yeah. can see napalm you know, floating around uh, in the air, people running around on the ground. It was not... Scary. Yeah, it was scary. But anyway, I would say that Stephen was more on the liberal side of the political issue. Yeah. And, Absolutely. um, you know, this is a time when friends and relatives and, uh, classmates from high school were being killed in Vietnam. So it was serious business. Yeah. So what happened between your anti-war activities and the beginning of your filmmaking, which was taking place prior to 1974 and the, the years of intervening? Well, I, uh, I wanted very much to be... Uh, in the motion picture industry, and I continued making my own films and um, working on other documentaries, you know, like as a cameraman or as an editor, and um, really found that, you know, I really enjoyed that. And, um, you know, I had some success with that, working getting in the union, working as a union assistant cameraman during all the Thomas of People's Park and all the stuff in uh, San Francisco. and um, But it, uh, I just didn't, I didn't find it really that fulfilling. Mm. Um, it's hard work. <laughs> it, well, it, it wasn't the hard work. It was more the attitudes of the people I had to deal with because they weren't oh. as liberal as I was. Okay. So well, then I'm sure I, it was a very different time than now. It um, was. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, th by the way, this is the beginnings of the, uh, the huge beginnings of the so-called alternative pornographic industry <laughs> where, you know, you had the Mitchell brothers and all these people in San Francisco was like the was like the you know the the headquarters for this uh, you know uh, kind of stuff, <laughs> and if the union found you were working in that, I mean you were just thrown out in your ear. Mm. So there was that side, but I hooked up with a couple of uh, producer types, and we started our own film company and started making documentaries mainly on medical subjects. Mm. And we did very, very well. Uh, but after a while, it um, I just kind of was looking for something a little more personally fulfilling. And um, I had several friends who were what's called COs, conscientious objectors. And they were St. Mary's graduates. So after they got out 
of St. Mary's, they became COs to avoid the draft. And um, two of them worked at a treatment center for very disturbed kids. Okay. That was their CO work. And the only time I could really see them is to accompany them on outings with disturbed kids. And that's when I became interested in that field. Mm. Now, is that how you know Danny and Hillary? I had met Danny when I was I was living in the SDS commune in Berkeley. Danny is, by the way, Stephen's brother. Yes, we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah no, okay. Sorry. Well, it's so interesting, Simone. You should bring that up. I knew Danny totally separate from Steve and didn't really put together that they were brothers. Which is surprising because if you get them in a room, I guess if you see them separately, though, it's not. Well, I never, you know. Yeah, I you never, never saw them together. Them yeah, yeah. But I had. <laughs> I had several friends because I got into psychology and treatment, and there was a whole group of people that were into alternative treatment in those days. Uh, in other words, non-drug treatment. One was Landry right. Wildland, the other was Alvin Heller, and the other was Peter LaRiviera. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we would have long discussions, and Ray Sundance uh, was also in that. That was the David uh, Dillinger's son. Peter Lavivier, by the way, an MD from Harvard and a doctor-in-law from Yale, and yet he was working with, uh, you know, literally homeless people and veterans whose lives had unraveled. And I met Peter in Berkeley through Alvin Heller, who started at, you know, a halfway house for... Uh, older people, you know, it was kind of an independent living situation mm. to teach them. Okay. And um, at the treatment center I ran, um, we needed a doctor because we would go on these eight and ten week camping trips with the kids. Uh-huh. And I'm talking about a treatment center with 350 staff, Simone, not any small thing. Oh, okay. Okay. And Peter was our doctor. And I had several, uh, I had about 50 interns come from Germany, PhD students. Oh. Uh, because of one woman, she kind of started it. And of course, Peter fell in love with uh, one of the German PhD students, uh, a woman named Hildegard Kraus. So Peter was around all the time, and I, and I got to know him, and then, um, Oh, I, I'm sorry. I met Peter because I had filmed uh, his daughter's birth. Oh. That's how I met Peter. Peter Landry was living in a commune and got pregnant by Peter, and uh, I filmed Ariel's birth, and that's how wow. I met him. <laughs> yeah. Peter was kind of ministering to the farm workers. Yeah, he was he was an alternative, uh yeah, very alternative. And um you know, Peter suffered from dwarfism. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, I did. Yeah. Okay. And so he was very uh sympathetic to others that had issues. Right. And also was uh you know, very uh compassionate about that as well. Now, why did Peter die so young? Was it a sudden heart thing, or 
I believe so. I believe so. Was it related to the dwarfism? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It could have been. Because they, I mean, I think there's a more higher risk. But anyway, um, I still am in touch with Landry. She's here in Berkeley. And Danny, by the way, wants to get together with Landry and a bunch of the old folks. (laughs) But going back to Danny, (coughs) Danny was involved in BCI. Which is? Um, I'm sorry, BCI, Berkeley Therapy Institute. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. And he and Peter and Landry were on the founding board of that organization, which, you know, provided no-cost therapy or alternative therapies um, to people. It's kind of intimate, and it's still there now. And my good friend Joe Chernick runs it. So I've seen Danny at different BTI events, kind of fundraising events or lectures that Joe has invited me to. Okay. (laughs) Okay. And so I went to a party at his house, Mm -hmm. and um, he looked at me and says, I know you. And I go, eh. (laughs) And then I connected only that time that it was, Stephen's brother, <laughs> and he didn't believe me, <laughs> so he called Steve on the phone. <laughs> and so oh my God, yeah, I remember him. God, yeah, of course we know each other. <laughs> and then handed me the phone. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> so that's how I found out you were brothers, Stephen. But I had really through the '60s and '70s of being involved with both of you. I didn't know that you were even related. <laughs> oh, that's a wonderful story. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> I but just Danny, it's hard for me to believe because when you get them in the room together, but again, like we said, it's like you weren't they weren't ever around at the same time, so how would you put that together? Exactly. And actually the way I met Danny is Joe introduced me and I said, Danny, I met you before. Don't you remember me? <laughs> and he said no. And he said, Who, how do I know you? And I said, and I named Peter and Landry and Ray Sundance and Alvin Heller. Oh, God, yeah, it's been years and blah, 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 blah. See, that's the difference between Danny and you, Dad. You never forget someone. Your brother on the other hand always forgets people. I swear if I wasn't related to him, he might forget who I was. <laughs> well, and then I knew Denny. Oh, yeah. Fourth Street. And, uh, you know, he... That kind of nasty guy. <laughs> <laughs> who, by the way, owns Fourth Street in Berkeley. For those all of except listening. the Apple Building. All oh, right. The Apple all except building. the Apple Building. And I, I remind him of that, and it doesn't please him. <laughs> it's like it's the one thing that he wants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that family held out, and they sold it to Apple. But yeah. it's interesting because my daughter's. Uh, father-in-law was the landscape designer for that whole project, Jeff Miller, and his brother-in-law designed it all, David Trachtenberg. Oh, okay. And Jeff Miller has since redesigned two important parks in San Francisco. Yeah, and Kizar, and Kizar. Kizar, and what's the other one? He did Kizar. Oh, yeah. Who's that in the background? I think my mom is yelling through the phone. 
Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, well, that's a, that's a good yeah. two cents. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it unusual that after all these years of kind of being over at the house and the, uh, talking deep philosophy, talking into the night, and then leaving and being involved in the political, you know, like an SDS and dealing with alternative patient care, and that I wouldn't put the two brothers together till <laughs> like, recently. <laughs> Isn't that unusual? Oh, that's great, though. But um, I have to say that I've never, uh, I've never been invited out or taken Danny out to lunch. <laughs> and you pay the needle lunch doesn't but Stephen and I enjoy life. our lunches in the city very very much yes well that's just so wonderful the art collection oh yeah and your dad said oh yeah he got that when Macy's closed down and they had to get rid of a bunch of props oh my god <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly you we know, know who has the taste in the family I guess well, in other words, saying he's not a collector; he just bought no. from some damn department store. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it must true. be said that these were not simply props that they put in the window, but they actually hired an anthropologist to right. go over and find the objects. <laughs> but what store was it? What what was it? What store Is it true was it? What I Is said? it true that it was from a department store, Dan? It was Macy's. Oh, it was. Yeah, I, I have a good memory. <laughs> you do. You have a really good memory. Uh, anyway, so, you know, I have an older brother, and there's sibling rivalry there. Mm. But I, I, Danny doesn't have the connection that you and your uh, that my that your dad and I have with San Francisco, right? And the different people that populate San Francisco. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Because every time we get together. We go down this list of, do you know him or do you know him? Where are they? No. And it just goes on and on and on. We haven't reached the end of it. That's really great. Well, so, is there anything else, Dan, that you'd like to add or Matthew, anything before we wrap things up? I, I well, there's so many sidebars, you know, just the people that were at St. Mary's when, uh, Jim Townsend, who came out of a circle of poets that included Robert Duncan when he was in school, mm. and the great intellectual historian, Kandorovich, who had been in a circle with Georg in Germany. And Brother Robert connected with all sorts of disparate people. Uh, including John us. Logan, including <laughs> us. And and John Logan, the poet, came to teach at St. Mary's and became Hobbes' teacher, and the writer James Chevelle was teaching there. I mean, as I say, for a, a small religious school in the suburbs of Oakland, it had surprising connections with its time. <laughs> I agree. That's I agree. very true. Now, um, it's. I think it's very, very unusual that. Um, I mean, I've known Stephen over fifty years, and so uh, I've seen different incarnations. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think the basic uh, curiosity and desire uh, for truth 
has changed. <laughs> Very true. I don't I think that's that. changed. <laughs> and um, I've never felt uh, when I've expressed an opinion, I've never felt like, you know, that I was stupid or not. Uh, you know, I felt like I misread something. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we've always had a great uh, time for discussion about, you know, old topics, new topics. But I, I would say lately uh, we've pretty much focused on old San Francisco and who and people who live there. Yeah. And I wanted to bring up Elaine McEwen, Stephen. Oh, that's an unlikely turn. Who bring her up? Well, she was pretty much the 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 force behind the Museum of Modern Art. It's certainly in its transformation. That's quite true. And its movement to the new building. Right. And her daughter Kathy and I were very close. We started kindergarten together, and Kathy worked with kids that had been uh, abused. So that was also our connection. And her husband, Ned, uh, was involved in the motion picture industry. And not in anything, you know, really exciting. I think he did Kentucky, tried, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie, I think was one of his. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> I, you know, Kathy and I would get together at Northeast Restaurant or the different restaurants and have, I found out she passed away. Mm-hmm. And she was also, like, on the board of the Museum of Modern Art and started this, uh, uh, it's called San Francisco Fog. Oh, yeah. Stanley Gatley. Well, Kathy started that. Oh. <coughs> and I, want, <coughs> I was just wondering if you ever ran into either of them. Oh, I mean, I certainly did. As a matter of fact, I was at her house once for a book signing about, uh, Elaine Somebody or Kathy? Written a biography of the Reyes. Is this Elaine or Kathy? Uh, this is Elaine. Elaine, when I was at St. Mary's, was president of the Board of Regents. No kidding. Well, that's oh, why I, have... always, I always knew she was a major philanthropic force. Well, that's why they have the McEwen Pavilion. Right. She donated the money to build that after her husband, George McEwen, who didn't even go to St. Mary's. He went to Stanford, but his brother went there. And she loved St. Mary's. When there That's was a board of regents. I didn't know anything about that connection. Yeah, she loved St. Mary's and was chair of the Board of Regents for years. And when I was at school there and there was a Board of Regents meeting, she would invite me to have lunch with her in one of those little dining rooms uh, with Brother Jerome, Jerome West. Who was the president for some years. And he, uh, you know, she would always ask how I was doing and this and that. And that. Because I'd known her since, you know, I was a kindergartner. And I spent many, many, I mean, Elaine essentially drove us home after school. It's funny you bring this up because she's one of, Hundreds of people of which we had some connection in the Bay Area, and you've never mentioned her name before to me. 
I had no idea that you knew her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, Kathy and I went from kindergarten through eighth grade at St. Cecilia's, and then Kathy went to schools of the Sacred Heart, and my aunt, my great aunt, was the principal there. So I used to go to all the dances with her. <laughs> but after school, Elaine would pick us up and drive us home at the McEwen house after school. And we were literally there every day after school. And, uh, you know, I, I knew the family very, very well. Knew her real well. Well, it's just interesting. We could keep going on making these connections. Okay. And well, I, I have a question for you, though. How did you go from St. Mary's to the Art Institute? You know, you mentioned You've the never art told department. Me that. You, you mentioned the art department and Roy Schmaltz. It turns out that I created the studio art, the actual art making, as a major at St. Mary's College. And after that was finished, I ran into somebody uh, with the art commission in the city and per Seven years, I was head of neighborhood arts, which was a very extensive yeah, I remember that program. And after I'd done that, the art institute was looking for somebody who would take it in a different, more humane direction in some ways. And I ended up uh, giving them my name, and unlikely enough, became the president. I should point out, though. I started going to think, uh, to the Art Institute uh, shortly after I met Ansel Adams and was 15 years old. So I, w I was in adult classes, and I began to meet the first abstract expressionist sculptors and painters yeah. and poets. And uh, so that was an advantage when I was applying. It made a real difference. And I'm trying to think of that guy who's up near Sacramento. Oh, Manuel Neri. He lives that? in the church. Manuel Neri. Oh, of course. Well, Manuel Neri, who's a very great sculptor, had a show at St. Mary's College when right, I, I saw it. started the art department. Yeah, yeah, and, I saw it. Well, he, he remains, you know, one of the great figures of art in the West for sure. Well, I was at that opening because I worked for Brother Kieran in the art gallery. Well, that opening had Stations of the Cross, which was done with By Rouleau. black and white pencil, uh, a black pencil, and some Conti crayons. And it was very evocative, even though they were... Well, the thing I remember from... Put together. The thing I remember from the show was that Manuel Neri's wife had a bracelet with a red plastic cow glued to it. <laughs> was married to the painter Joan Brown and was at the very center of the Renaissance, which was placed at what was then called the California School. Yeah, I life. went, I actually went with Roy up to their house or their old church for a party and she was she was more interesting to me than Manuel Neri was. But well, I'll, I'll never 
I'll never forget that red cow on her bracelet. We could go on forever. I mean, just talking about the, the complicated connections at St. Mary's uh, and the earlier era that these people came out of. In a, yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up is, uh, did you know Imogene and Ansel didn't get along? Well, they didn't. They didn't. I mean, she thought he was, uh, in some way, you could hardly call Ansel Adams a grandstander, but he, he was keeping his place at the very pinnacle in terms of general reputation uh, of photography, even though there were very important developments going on in his era. Well, what she told me is that he was the first photographer she knew of that was supported by a um, a uh, photo equipment maker, and I think it was Leica. It was, as a matter of fact, the biggest support that he got was from Edwin Land and the Polaroid family. Okay, Polaroid Land. And she didn't like that. And um, she felt that his his photography was rather cold. That's the exact word she used. (laughs) (laughs) But she doesn't have an opinion. (laughs) She had an opinion about everything. I know. That's what I was saying. Yeah. <laughs> Simone, did you ever get to meet her? No. No. Simone when did was she born pass? in 84. She right. passed in 76. Yeah. She was a real character. Oh, that's what I've sure. heard. <laughs> Do you have a Imogene story, uh, Stephen? Oh, there's just so many of them. One would hardly know where to begin. But it is interesting that when she grew up in the state of Washington, she was in a sorority. You could hardly think of Imogen in the context of the sorority. And the sorority gave her a fellowship to go to Europe and study photography, which meant photochemistry. So she went to a person called Hochschule, which was kind of a small version of MIT to pursue her for the studies up there. And uh, she came from a background that always was connected to well-established people in the community as well as other artists. Yeah. Well, Well, um, go ahead. (laughs) Most people don't realize that she was a chemistry major at the University of Washington. And she got a side job uh, sensitizing glass uh, plates mm. with uh, egg albumin um, for Edward Curtis. Edward Curtis, of course, is the great photographer of the Indians of the Northwest. And so, you know, Imogene can really trace her roots back to almost the beginnings of photography, mm. or at least American photography. That's but... She she didn't care for uh, Ansel's work. My connection is my brother, who went to Vietnam when he was a junior at Sacred Heart, got a uh, uh, you know kind of after school job uh, spotting uh, prints for Ansel. When Somebody he was in, had to do it. Yeah, when he was in Petrero Hill, 
And, uh, of course, I met Emma Jean because she was a friend of my grandmother's. And I didn't know who the hell she was. But when I got into photography, I realized who she was. So I would go and visit her. I'd call up and come over. And um, Which, of course, means you were in Stephen Emily's yeah, house. Yeah, that's why I'm saying <laughs> And I would spend hours sitting on that old ratty couch she had that she covered with, you know, different throws. And behind the couch she had prints of her stuff. Um, some she printed herself, very few. And some uh, she printed, uh, had printed by General Graphics in San Francisco. Well, well she, eventually, did all, she did all her own printing, as a matter of fact. Pardon me? She did all her own printing. In those days, I mean, in New York, big photographers would send out the labs and work with people who were familiar with what they wanted. Right. Uh, but she just did it herself in she a did. very small dark room in the basement, which was about four feet by ten feet by barely six feet high. Yeah, it was tiny. Well, she tiny. was tiny. Yes. But, um, <laughs> those photographs are extremely valuable. I'm saying later on in her life, when she was in her late 80s, early 90s, she had prints done by General Graphics in San Francisco. There was a man named Sander there who was like her guy. And I eventually became her courier, taking negatives there, getting a phone call they're done, picking him up and bringing him back to the house where she would make cucumber sandwiches for me, you know. <laughs> but um, many great photographers banged on that door while I was visiting her. And uh, she didn't cut them any slack at all. (laughs) I remember there was a very famous uh, art institute photographer, and she would call them that, who came to the door, and she said, you know, I'm really tired right now, but I have all these dishes in my sink that I'm sure if um, someone would wash them, that I might have a minute or two for them. (laughs) I've been sitting on the couch, and this guy went into the kitchen and did the dishes (laughs) and then came out, and Emma Jean talked to him for like two minutes (laughs) and left. (laughs) That's spectacular. (laughs) But she hated Magnolia. She hated Magnolia. Well, that picture later sold even in her lifetime for a couple hundred thousand dollars for a Lord. She feared that that uh, when uh, the books or people would bring up her name, that they would bring up that picture. Um, mm. She felt that um, I considered her the the greatest uh, photographer of the female form ever. Better than Weston, I think. Weston was certainly very great. And um, that's what she liked, too. But Magnolia was not something that she particularly liked at all. Well, she certainly in general liked pictures of plants. She 
did. It may have been for some reason she wasn't particularly uh, in love with the Magnolia, but there were certainly photographs that she was, you know, very attached to. Yeah. Well, she told me she did it as a test for a new camera. Really? And that, yeah, and that people saw it and, uh, you know, liked it. And it wasn't something that she – she said it was almost too easy for her to take the picture. Well, most of her life, she sold prints to, like, 25 to $50. And then yeah. all of a sudden, photography began to be considered very valuable. Right. So that but, you know, took place in the last few years of her life. Not she – she had a very salty uh, way of talking, and um, I helped her with her last show at uh, the Oakland Museum, Steve. Oh. And, that, and shortly after that show, she died. Mm. So, but uh, yeah, I was I was sitting in that house uh, on Green Street many a time. <laughs> Before they bought it. And I'm sitting in that house right now. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, on that that high point, I think we can bring this stage (laughs) of the conversation. All right, Clovis. All right, Matthew, thank you so much for being on the phone today. This is really fascinating, and I'm sure we could talk for another few hours. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Hey, and when's our next lunch? It'll be in the next few weeks. We'll organize it. So are you Hard busy? to be going to Swans. You don't want to go back to Swans? No, I'd be happy to. You can barely top that. <laughs> so maybe that's what we'll do. Well, thank okay. you very much. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed Stephen Goldstein Knows All. Thanks for joining us.